Welcome to Spirit of the Hall, our Teddy Hall podcast series brought to you for Orlarians by Orlarians. My name is Ollie Belcher and I am the president of the St. Edmund Hall Alumni Association. I am delighted to bring you conversations with some of Teddy Hall's most fascinating alumni, fellows and staff. This episode is with Akash Maharaj, who came up to the Hall from Canada in 1990 to read PPE. In his second year, he was elected as JCR president, which remains one of the warmest experiences of his life. To this day, I would say, serving as the Cambridge JCR president is one of the warmest experiences of my life. After Teddy Hall, having never been on a horse before, Akash decided to get on a saddle and went on to become an equestrian star representing Canada at the World Championships. I have never been one of nature's athletes and I discovered riding after Teddy Hall and to put it into context, that would be considered outlandishly geriatric. Akash then set up the Mosaic Institute focusing on conflict resolution. He works with diaspora communities and local communities to try and find common ground rather than differences. And entirely unexpected consequences of that project is that several of the participants actually married one another. Oh wow, so job done. (laughs) Akash has been decorated twice in Canada's national honours for his work to bring peace in the Middle East. Akash, your work is inspiring and it is a privilege to speak to you today. Okay, well, Akash, thank you so much for joining us today. We're absolutely delighted to have you as part of our Spirit of the Hall series. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So I'm going to kick off by asking you, can you remember how you felt the first time you set foot in the front quad of Teddy Hall? I'll confess that it was somewhat (laughs) awe-inspiring. Obviously, I'd gone through the application process, and I knew that Teddy Hall was the college I wanted to apply to, and I'd been thinking about Oxford for for many years. So to actually be there was somewhat overwhelming. My first visit to the college was for my interview, and it was, as so many days are, overcast and, and drizzly, but that did not dampen my spirits. I, I felt, I won't say that I felt immediately at home, but I felt immediately inspired. Fantastic. And you've been thinking about it for many years. And, and you know, did anyone influence you or encourage you to apply to Oxford? Or was it a teacher or a friend or anyone in particular? You know, I, I'm Canadian and I studied at secondary school in Canada. And so applying to Oxford is not a normal thing to do. To a large extent, I feel somewhat grateful that I had no real sense of what a bizarre thing it was to do before I did so. I might have, been, I might have felt too intimidated or too put off by the eccentricity of it all. I had read about the university. I had a sense of the fact that the system of education is unique in the world, the, the intimacy of it, of the tutorial system. But I suppose someone living in the United Kingdom will be aware of the reach of Oxford, but its reach is across the world and indeed across time. I think there are few people in the English-speaking world who do not have a mental image of what Oxford is and what it means. That mental image isn't always closely aligned to reality, but it is very powerful and it is extraordinarily magnetic. I know, I I totally agree with you. And I actually remember that totally overwhelming feeling as well of walking, you know, through the Porter's Lodge into the front quad for that exam and interview. So when you, when you had that exam and interview, how did you think they went? <laughs> the interview was actually quite, quite broad ranging. And I thought that the, the technical questions that they asked me went reasonably well. What had surprised me were some of the, the searching questions that they asked me about my, my interest, why I wanted to, to study at university, and what were some of the questions that hung in my mind. Um, that I was hoping a university education might help me to answer. 
those went, I suppose, surprisingly well. And when I say surprisingly, I was surprised to be asked such questions. I was surprised to be asked questions that didn't seem to be intended to measure my knowledge or my skills, but my appetite to learn. And when I got back to the room I was staying at, the interviewers had pinned a letter to my to my door saying that they were intended to offer me a place. It was a, it, I, I didn't sleep much that night, but it was a happy wakefulness. Well, that's amazing. You found out there and then. I, I, I don't know if that's, if that is usual. They, they did say parenthetically in the letter that their offer was subject to the approval of the principal. Now, I think that that is a technicality, which they, they felt compelled to, to include. I don't think the principal takes a hand in, in accepting or rejecting people who, where the decision has been rendered by the admissions tutor. But as a, a secondary school student, I had no idea that that was a, a technicality. So I, part of me thought, well, I wonder if the principal is going to reject me. He did not. So you, so you took up your place in 1990 to read PPE. And on your first day, when you came back to the college, you know, back from Canada to actually come to Teddy Hall, what did you think then? Were you confident or nervous? I, I was still quite nervous. I felt out at sea. This, it was a beautifully glorious sunny day. And I remember lining up in the front court as we were being registered and, and being handed all sorts of bits of paper. But certainly at the time, there was very little orientation to, uh, to students before we came up. We were simply told the time and the place and to present ourselves at, at, the, at that appropriate moment with no real sense of, of what to expect. At that moment, everything is new. I think that's true for anyone start, uh, starting university at any institution in the world. As I said before, Oxford comes with a, <laughs> with a magnetism and a reputation, and that makes the experience that much more, that much more intimidating. I have to say that, in addition, I have throughout much of my life struggled with shyness. That added an additional layer. But what helped to alleviate that anxiety was the fact that I immediately saw that all the other students around me were similarly suffering from the same level of anxiety. We were anxious together and therefore comforted together. So so apart from PPE, um, what else did you do in Oxford? I was interested in international development, so I became involved in, in the university's UNICEF Society, after a while, I became involved in the RAG Society on, on a university-wide basis. In my second year, I was elected JCR president. To this day, I would say serving as the college's JCR president is one of the warmest experiences of my life. You know, I, I'm very much unlike what one would, might consider a, a typical Teddy Hall student, if, if such a thing exists. I'm, perhaps it would be better for me to say I am unlike the, t- the Teddy Hall stereotype. At, certainly in 1990, and I suspect it's, it's still the case now, Teddy Hall was known as as the rugby co- college, and being a Canadian, I'd never even seen a rugby match right. before coming to Oxford. It's also it was also known as a very hard drinking college. the The phrase "to haul a pint" meant to down a pint pint in one. I don't drink alcohol. <laughs> so did you did you ever drink alcohol? Or, or? I, I'm not completely teetotal, but um, I I rarely drink. I rarely drink now, and I rarely drank then. Um, and it's also a very gregarious and very boisterous college, and I tend to be quite a quiet person. For all these reasons, it's it's difficult to imagine someone who is more unlike the Teddy Hall stereotype than myself. But the fact that my peers were happy to elect me to be JCR president, I think that says something about the college's culture. It says that whatever the stereotypes are, the fact is it is a collection of individuals and of, and of very different people. And there is an ethic in the college, at least there was when I was there, that you don't have to be like us 
to be one of us. And I've carried that with me the rest of my life. Fantastic. So, so just a tiny bit more on that, because this is fascinating. Um, why do you think they elected you as JCR president? <laughs> I suppose I was terribly keen. <laughs> so I was probably really putting you on the spot. <laughs> I discovered a real affection for the college, for, for it, it's not just its history and its architecture, which are the obvious things, but for the community of students. I think anyone arriving at Teddy Hall, the first thing that leaps to one's eyes are the, is the beauty of the front court. And uh, perhaps after that, a sense of the extraordinary ancient history of the college, reaching back to not just the, the earliest college of, colleges of Oxford, but indeed reaching even further back into history before co- the first colleges existed as a whole. And yet, the most important thing about Teddy Hall isn't the architecture and it isn't its history. It's the community of people who are within within those walls. And I did enjoy my time as JCR president. It really did hone my skills in, I suppose, one what might, might call public leadership. I'm conscious that it's possible, inevitable, that there are people who could have done a better job as, at being JCR president than me. But I don't think it, it could have been possible for there to be someone who had a greater affection, loyalty, and sense of wonder at being a member of that community. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you. So a little bit away from being JCR president, I, I, I'm aware that one of your passions is equestrian sport. And I believe actually you're a triple gold medalist from the International Championships of Equestrian Skill at Arms. And that you've also led the Canadian equestrian team as CEO through what I, what I hear is, um, has been the team's most successful Olympics and Paralympics of all time. Can you tell me a little bit about it? And did you horse ride at Oxford or how did you get into this? You know, if you were to speak to my friends in high school, I'll go back in time and speak to my friends when I was in high school and say to them that there might come a day when I might be a national athlete, they would have laughed at you. And if you were to then say to them that it would be an equestrianism, they would have fallen about themselves laughing at you. Oh, wow. So this wasn't a childhood pursuit? No, not at all. Okay. <laughs> I have never been one of nature's athletes. <laughs> and I discovered riding after Teddy Hall when I was uh, when I was in my mid-twenties. And to put it into context, that would be considered outlandishly geriatric for a beginner, beginner rider. I can't claim that my body is built in a particularly sound way for any pursuit, but the first time I I was in the saddle, I did immediately feel that my body was built for this. The the sense of riding with the horse, uh, the, the the sensation, the momentum of the horse, the the sense of of the restrained power of the animal and the way its body and my body work together. I immediately thought, I think this is the sport for me. But but, but Akash, how did you even get on a horse? People have asked me that, and I don't have a satisfactory answer for it. I always had an interest. I always thought this is something I might do at some, uh, something I'd like to try in the future. I never imagined there would become such a large part of my life. Because it's such an unu- it's so unusual to begin riding as an adult, I didn't want to continue riding at, <laughs> at a, a facility where other people at my at my level would be five years old. <laughs> no, yeah. So uh, I began riding with a group of, of other adults, and those opportunities are unlimited in Canada. One of the few places where it's possible to do so is with the Canadian forces, with the military. In Canada, our ceremonial military units are all run by volunteers. Canadians are not enthusiastic about the idea of public resources being spent on 
decorative activities of the state. And so I began riding with the ceremonial unit of regiment in Canada, mainly because it was other adults. My skills progressed very quickly. One of the sports that is used to train military riders is equestrian skill at arms or tent pegging. It's effectively galloping about with a sword, sabre or lance and skewering or poking a series of, of ground and elevated targets. And no one was more surprised than I was to discover that I had a talent for this. And this talent took me first to the national championships and then to the international championships. I just think it's amazing to discover something at the age of 25 and then end up at the World Championships. Yes, I, I, <laughs> I agree. I mean, that, that's, that's really inspiring. That's really inspiring for people because, you know, I, I agree with you. So often in life you think there's no point trying that because people have been doing this since they were five years old. But actually, if you love something and, and want to, you know, give it time and commitment, you, you can go places. Absolutely. I, I think there's an advantage to having started as an adult as well, and that is that I was starting because I wanted to do so, not because a parent or a guardian thought it was a good idea. And in addition to that, one of the aspects of equestrianism that, uh, to which I've been really drawn is that it is a genuine partnership between two beings, between a person and an animal. So much of my life is bound up with words. You know, at Teddy Hall, the entire system for PPE is based on essays. In my profession, in conflict resolution, it's all about words used in diplomacy, the ability of words to pull people together and the risk of words driving people apart. But in equestrianism, there can obviously be no words between a horse and his rider. It is entirely a language of the body. And learning to be able to communicate with another being in that way, without the benefit of, of words, was an entirely new world to me. And it's one of the things I, I've, I've most enjoyed. So, Akash, you mentioned also talking about horses, you know, how you, you see the synergies with conflict resolution. And that's actually what you're in now with um, being the CEO of the Mosaic Institute, bringing peace between countries. And I believe you've been decorated twice in Canada's national honours for your work to bring peace in the Middle East. Can you tell us a little bit about this? The work I currently do is as head of the Mosaic Institute, and it operates through what is technically called track two diplomacy. In effect, it means bringing together non-state actors from conflict zones to broker talks and to try to build a sense of, uh, of empathy, a sense of mutual understanding between them, and from that to try to build out strategies for conflict resolution. So, for example, I've worked on projects that involve bringing, bringing together Israelis and Palestinians to try to craft strategies to reduce the conflict in the Middle East. Um, we've had projects in Sri Lanka after the, after the civil war, which involved bringing together Tamil and uh, Sinhalese people to talk about rebuilding the, the country and what, what kind of country they wanted to build to get together now that the civil war was over. And we've worked on, with Somalians on trying to create a system of federalism which would which will reduce the likelihood of conflict between them in, in the future. I, I feel very privileged to be doing this work and I, I'm one of those rarities where my profession is actually directly related to my degree and I have found it useful. Ironically, what has been most useful to me in my work from my time at Teddy Hall, I'm going to confess that I have I think I've probably forgotten everything that I was taught when I was at Teddy Hall. But on the other hand, I remember everything that I learned because the most important things that I learned came from my interactions with my peers. Teddy Hall was a bit of a microcosm of the world in that there were people from all over the world 
Um, there were people who spoke different languages, and there were people who had radically, radically different social backgrounds from one another. Yet all of us had a very strong feeling that despite our differences, we were all members of Teddy Hall. We were all Illyrians and we were all, we, we were all Oxonians. That there is something that binds us together that is deeper than the divisions of the world. That is at the heart of my work with Mosaic. It's, it's helping people to develop, to discover their common humanity and to develop ways of living together. It's rarely about getting people to agree with one another. Often those divisions run far too deep and the scars are far too hard. But it is about finding ways to help them look to the future together, to have a sense that notwithstanding what their past might have been and notwithstanding the wrongs that they and their families may have done to one another, that they, whoever they are and wherever they come from, all of them always hope that their children and their grandchildren will not have to endure the horrors that they did. And that is enough. So are you, are you working at a government level or do you actually go into the communities and try and get people from different sides to, to talk and, um, and try and find commonality rather than difference? The work always begins with, with community members and often it begins with diaspora members. So the Institute is based in Canada and our work usually starts with expatriates. So for to take an, an example with, this, with the project in Sri Lanka, our work began by bringing together the Tamil Canadian and the Sinhalese living in Canada okay. um, and to build common understanding between them. But once we had a beachhead, as it were, between those two c- communities, and that I won't say that was easy, but that was easier than starting with people on the ground in Sri Lanka because those were two communities who, notwithstanding their differences, were now living in the same city in Toronto um, and living in a, in a completely new context, which gave them at least the opportunity to see the conflict from a different perspective. But after that was successful, we then took the project to Sri Lanka itself and brought together Tamil and Sinhalese people within Sri Lanka. That was successful. And we then went to the government of Sri Lanka, who worked with us on a project that involved having Tamil and Sinhalese people work with one another to rebuild the the water infrastructure in villages across the country. That had the benefit of both providing a basic human right, access to clean water to people across the country, but on a perhaps deeper level, it made an impact on the population for Tamil villages to see Sinhalese people building wells and water infrastructure in their community, and it made an equal impact in Sinhalese villages to see Tamil people working on rebuilding wells for them. It created a sense that they were all Sri Lankans, and I won't say that Sri Lanka is now uh, a place of, of post-racial bliss. It, it isn't. But progress is always a question of an infinite number of small steps. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating to get into those communities in the first place. Did you bring the Sri Lankans from Canada to help make the introductions, or did you just turn up? No, we, we did take the, the Sri Lankan Canadian representatives to Sri Lanka itself. And that is often an important part of, of the way the Institute operates. That is to say that people who are now living in Canada maintain relationships and maintain credibility with the communities in the conflict zones from which they have come. In many ways, the, the work that we do is quintessentially Canadian. That is, it it speaks to the aspiration of what it means to be, be Canadian. There is no Canadian race and there is no Canadian ethnicity because 98% of Canada's population is made up of immigrants or the descendants of immigrants. But there's still a sense that it's possible to build a country with a shared civic identity based on a shared set of social and political values. That's easier to do in a developed country than in the developing world. 
And that is much easier to do in a country where people don't have a, dr a direct experience of conflict with one another. But I think that is the ultimate aspiration of, of all nations, to build a, a state where all of its citizens stand equal to stand in equal dignity to one another, irrespective of their social or ethnic backgrounds. Absolutely. And and what once you've been into the communities and you know getting getting that mutual understanding between them, and, and you know doing um, initiatives like building worlds together, how do you ensure that the that the long term sustainability of those um, initiatives is upheld? That's a very good question because I I have to say I have seen projects that have have involved similarly trying to bring people together where it works as long as the people are brought together and then when they go home to their their communities they become as it were reinfected by the contagion of of hatred and and anger i think the key is is always having ongoing activities and ongoing engagements to go back to the sri lankan example one of the unlooked for um, and entirely unexpected consequences of that of that project is that several of the participants from the Tamil and Sinhalese community actually married one another oh, wow. <laughs> at the end, end of the projects. And, um, so job done. <laughs> I understand that that, that, is, that is extraordinarily rare for there to be what, what would be considered in Sri Lanka and, and interracial, at least cross-community cross -community marriages. Um, that's not a typical tactic of our organization i must say <laughs> we don't have a dating agency arm although perhaps Mo mosaic, mosaic marriage service <laughs> but our projects are always based on try on setting up something that will be sustained and continues after we have gone mm -hmm. at the end of the day an external party an external institute even, even one like ours that is very well intentioned cannot impose peace on another on another group of people they have to want peace and they have to build it themselves when i look at state-to-state -state interventions that have gone awry and sometimes terribly awry it's almost always been because external states have tried to impose norms or impose um, impose democracy or, or impose forms of democracy or or forms of engagement on an unwilling or uninvested population and that never works it, and even if it did work, it would be unjust. You you can't force other people to be other than how they wish to be. And there, are, but for all of the examples of of failed interventions, there are a small number of highly inspiring examples. In Britain, I would say Northern Ireland is one of them. I know that the the Good Friday Agreement is, of course, there are questions hanging over it now that the United Kingdom has left the European Union. But what has really impressed me with the people from Northern Ireland with whom I've worked, has been the willingness of people to forgive. And I'll, I'll be perfectly honest, if members of my own family had been murdered by another community, if I had seen it happen, as as as, as occurred with some of the people I've worked with, I'm not sure I would have it in me to forgive. But they have. The peace that, the relative peace that now reigns in Northern Ireland, ultimately it's not because of the actions of political actors, although that was important. It's not because of the Good Friday Agreement, even though that is a landmark agreement. Fundamentally, it's because the people of Northern Ireland were willing and able to forgive one another. And without that, nothing else works. I think, I think that's a huge lesson for all of us, isn't it? In every aspect of life. Yeah, well, I, I hugely admire you for it. Um, and yeah, and th this whole series is about the, the spirit of Teddy Hall and how it shaped us all. And it sounds to me as if you believe that Teddy Hall really did shape you 
So, Kash, what, what do you think the actual spirit of the hall is? <laughs> do you know, that is so hard to define, as most important things are. Everyone who has been through Tadyahun would say that the college has an extraordinarily strong sense of identity. I have very rarely met anyone who regretted his choice of Teddy Hall. I've met many people who had no idea what Teddy Hall was like, and I, I will add myself to that list. But despite the fact that I think that that is quite a common experience, that people don't really know what to expect before they arrive, almost everyone who passes through its doors, who, who walks through that front court and spends part of his life there, and his form, especially his formative years there, leaves feeling very happy to have made that choice or, or very happy that life has brought him there. So I what, totally agree. Totally agree with you. So what is that spirit? I, I think in part it is there's an intensity to Teddy Hall um, that is in part that is a product of, of its small f- of footprint and increasingly large student population. I think there's I think there's a sense of valuing eccentricities and that's especially important to me because I am such an eccentric person and have had such an eccentric life. But there there was always a place for everyone at Teddy Hall, no matter what your interests were, no matter who you are. There was also a sense, a very strong sense, that even though we might not have a lot in common, that we were all Nolarians. You know, I, I'm I'm conscious, especially as a Canadian. Canada is the Canadian state is a young country, um, 1867, and there were, I literally had um, uh, had silverware at Teddy Hall that was older than that. So I am perhaps more conscious than most of of what it means to be a college that is eight or nine hundred years old, in a un- university that may be as much of a, as a thousand years old. But what I take away from that is that it is an extraordinary thing, and it's too easy to take it for granted. But it is the case that the ties that bind people together through Teddy Hall are literally older than the foundations of the modern world. They have been more enduring than the countless kingdoms, countries, and empires that have risen up and have fallen away during the eight or so centuries that the college has existed. What that means to me is that being a member of Teddy Hall, being an Olarian, means that you are part of a community, part of a, a brotherhood or a sisterhood that stretches back to the, through the mists of times and where the bones are stronger than the petty divisions that exist in the world. All the things that we now think of as as marking us as being different from one another. Uh, the languages that we speak, the religions that we profess, the countries and the borders in which we confine ourselves, all of those things are younger than Teddy Hall. And the fact that it is a, a community that has endured while all those other things have fallen away is a reminder that fundamentally we are all the same, no matter what the differences are that the world imposes on us. And Teddy Hall has a way of helping people to discover that, perhaps not explicitly, but certainly implicitly, that there are things that bind us together as human beings that are more important than the factors the world will use to push us apart. And that if we hold on to that, that we can triumph over those divisions. It's quite a sobering thought, isn't it? To think how, how old the college is. But as you say, we are all Orlarians who've all experienced it. And, and I just want to say, I was just thinking, you know, of those Orlarians, have you, have you, stayed in touch with Teddy Hall friends? Or- I've certainly st- uh, stayed in touch with many of my friends, not as many as I should like. As you said, I matriculated in 1990 before before the internet was really a thing, as it were, and certainly before social media be- came into existence. So I do 
envy the current generation of students who are joining the college at a time when it is when it would be much easier to maintain their friendships after their time at Teddy Hall is over. But yes, I, I I've maintained contact with many of my friends at Teddy Hall. And and Akash, have you have you been back to the hall since 1993 when you graduated? I have many times, uh, and it's uh, not not during the pandemic, obviously, but. Work usually takes me to Britain at least once a year, and I always make a point of going to Oxford and sometimes boring friends who I take with me. I will say that every time I have come, I have come back to Teddy Hall. Every time I have walked into the front quad, I do feel that same feeling that I felt on that very first day. There is, as I said, a magnetism to Oxford, but there is. There's a far greater magnetism and intensity about that experience. The calendar tells me that I'm no longer 18 years old. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> But whenever I step into that front court, it's the same feeling I had when I was 18. Absolutely. And so, Akash, before you go, I'm going to ask you to leave us all with three favourite places of yours. <laughs> okay. So one is in the world, one is in Oxford, and one is in Teddy Hall. I'll start with Teddy Hall first. Um, the year that I, I I spent as JCR president, my room, I think it was I, I'm embarrassed. I don't remember the exact configuration. Staircase two, I think it was staircase two, room one. It was a the room right above the the well rather than the buttery. Um, that is definitely my favourite place in in Oxford because of the I I think of so of sitting in the window seat looking out through the wisteria and seeing. My friends and the the students of the college, and feeling a great sense of warmth. And there are perhaps more dramatic vistas in Oxford, and there are certainly places that are more likely to turn up in films set in Oxford. But there is no place in the city where I, I have a a greater sen- sense of warmth, and a greater greater sen- sense of belonging. In Oxford, outside of Teddy Hall, that's interesting. There there is. And I, you know, actually, this is not a a university building, but there is a, a a small chapel. It was built for. I'm afraid that the name escapes me. I'm I'm sorry, but it was built as a a leper's chapel. And again, one of the things that really struck me visiting it was that it's a place that again has not been used for centuries. But the people buried there, although their lives would have been radically different from mine. They were once students like I was, and that too is I found quite moving. In the world, the world is a big place. Um, do I have a? I can't say that there's one place that I think of as being my my absolute favorite place, but I will say that the place that that springs to my mind is um, <laughs> is probably Algonquin Park. It's a park in northern Ontario. Uh, the province where, where I live, and there's nothing there. Uh, other, I mean, when I say there's nothing there, there's there, there are no buildings. There are few roads and few paths. Um, it, there's a good deal of wilderness and a lot of wounds, but it it is a place of great peace and great tranquility. And I I like being there because it reminds me that it's possible to be both in the world and out of the world at the same time. I particularly like your choice of place for the hall because I, I was very good friends with the JCR president when I was at Oxford, and I, I remember that beautiful, beautiful view. And when you're talking about the wisteria, I just remember looking through it as well and seeing the comings and goings of the college 
um, from that window. It's just, it's timeless. So finally, Cash, if you could guarantee one thing about the hall that would never change, what would it be? <laughs> that is also a difficult question because when I, when I think back over the history, so much has changed in Tetiol over its long history. I'm conscious of how much the college gave to me. I suppose the one thing that I would most hope that it is able to preserve is that it will be an open community. There are times going back into the distant past where Teddy Hall and, and all of Oxford's colleges were nothing more than the playground of the idle rich, where the majority of students who went to Oxford didn't even graduate with their degrees. They they went for a year or two for a sort of for and used the university as a sort of intellectual finishing school. The history of Teddy Hall, though, as a, as a whole and as a college, from its from its very inception, Teddy Hall was a place where people who may, might not have had a lot of money, who did not come from backgrounds of privilege, where they could go to get an Oxford education. That that was one of the real differences between the halls, the, the medieval halls, and the colleges that laid the foundation of Oxford and the colleges that followed them. Today, all of the halls have ceased to exist, and Teddy, other than Teddy Hall. It is the last of the Olerian houses. But I like to think that that and that ethic has gone up and down over the centuries. There are times, especially in the 19th century and the 18th century, when Teddy Hall was part of the culture of Oxford being a playground for people who went there to be seen to be going there, but had no real interest in the university or in education or in anything other than reinforcing their privileged positions in society. We've now come full circle, where I think Teddy Hall is again fighting for, and Oxford colleges are still trying to fight for, however imperfectly, the idea that they should be open to people based on merit rather than based on wealth or familial uh, familial privilege. And that is an ideal that is very much under threat as a result of rising costs. And the, and I do worry that institutions like Oxford are now going backwards, going back to a time where they are increasingly places to which only, only the wealthy have access. Teddy Hall is a better place because of the fact that all sorts of people have, ac- have had access to it. And more importantly, the world is a better place because all sorts of people have been able to pass through Teddy Hall. If there's one thing that I would want the college to hang on to is that it is a place for the best and the brightest, not a place for the richest. Totally agree with you and, and thank you for leaving us with that very important thought. And also for your time and enthusiasm today and most of all, bringing back many happy memories for me as well. So thank you, Akash. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me to be part of the, po- of the podcast. I really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Akash and his inspiring horse story about how you don't have to have done something since you were five years old to love it or be very good at it. You can achieve a lot at any stage in life with the key qualities of passion and commitment. Our next episode will be with Ronnie Tong, who came up to the hall from Hong Kong in 1972. After Oxford, Ronnie was called to the bar, taking silk in 1990. In 1999, he became chairman of the bar in Hong Kong and is now involved in politics, founding the Civic Party in 2006. Subscribe now on Spotify, Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for listening.